episode number 27. Welcome back in. This is the Expected Returns podcast. My name is Stephen Lutman. I'm a real estate investor and agent here in the capital region of New York State. Lots for us to get to today. However, before we jump in, I did mention last episode that client appreciation day was going to be held kind of a last hurrah for the summer. That has occurred. All the feedback I got was amazing. People had lots of fun. If you do want to see some pictures of the event, head on over to either our Facebook or Instagram account for SJ Lincoln Realty, and you can see all of the events that transpired. Also, the latest edition of the newsletter did go out a few days ago at this point, touching on homeowners insurance and just how expensive it's getting, especially for some folks live in the coast, live in uh, high danger areas for flooding, things like that. So how do we make it less expensive? How do we make it so people don't have to sell homes, things like that? Head on over to sjlincoln.com slash join. That way you can get that edition of the newsletter as well as every other one that does go out. Again, sjlincoln.com slash join. Become a member for free. That's it for the intro. Let's get into the episode. Where I want to start today is with a topic that I suspect is going to get a lot of play in the media this week, and that's the impending government shutdown. Now, this does tie into real estate. I promise you just got to stick with me for a little while. But the backstory here is that a lot of the agencies that you and I rely on for certain day-to-day services are funded on a year-by-year basis. And the fiscal year for the federal government starts October 1st. So all of the appropriation bills and appropriation bills are what directs the Treasury to send money to each of the agencies, needs to make its way from the House of Representatives to the Senate and eventually the President's desk for signature no later than September 30th. By law, the Treasury cannot spend money without a law authorizing it to do so. So what does this mean? No money, government shutdown. What is it that's actually happening here? Well, the Republicans have a slim majority in the House of Representatives and Democrats completely control the Senate. So even if you had all Republicans on board with a large omnibus bill, once it got to the Senate, it's essentially DOA. There's no way it's going to get through. It's turning out to be a little bit more difficult to get all the Republicans on the same page than maybe you would think. There's a group, a small group of Republicans, I believe by they got the Freedom Caucus is what they go by. And they're generally referred to as kind of a far right group. And one of their main uh, sticking points is decreasing government spending. They want large cuts to government spending. There are Republicans who are not on board with that. There are zero Democrats that are on board with that. So getting everyone on the same page, even within the Republican Party, is proving to be harder and harder. And to make matters worse, they're threatening to oust uh, Speaker of the House McCarthy unless they get what they want. Now, there's a recent uh, betting market that I took a look at that had the odds of a government shutdown at 74%. So people are overwhelmingly believing we're headed to a very dark place. In the event of a shutdown, who's impacted here? Well, between people classified as civilian workers as well as active duty military, over 3 million people are classified as federal government workers. In the event of a shutdown, they're either gonna be classified as essential or they're gonna get furloughed. Now to be classified as essential, in the case of a federal government, you're going to fall into one of three buckets. You're either going to be uh, in charge of protecting human life or property. You can be active duty military or in some way involved in the constitutional process. That would be in the event of a shutdown over 3 million people not receiving a paycheck. 
Now, once everything were to be approved and back up and running, everyone that's been furloughed as well as those who are continuing to show up to work do receive back pay. So no one's not going to be receiving pay. But I want you to think for a minute, what if this were to stretch on for four weeks, for six weeks? How many families do you know that could go that long without money coming in the door? Put your shoes in the put yourself in the shoes of a government contractor who are not guaranteed back pay. You're very likely going to receive zero. There are a lot of families that are going to be staring at some very dark futures unless the government's able to figure this out. Now, the last time we had a shutdown, uh, some economists came out and said it was roughly $11 billion worth of damage to the economy. Now, a lot of that was made up once back pay was instituted, but it still cut it down to $3 billion. So $3 billion worth of damage to the U.S. economy over politicians not being able to agree. This is silly. There's no reason we should be in the situation that we're in. We need to get this figured out. I did promise you this was going to tie into real estate some way or another, and here's how it's going to be. If you're applying for a VA or FHA loan, those, those applications are administered from HUD. If HUD is in under circumstances where they're operating under bare bones staff levels, how quickly are those applications going to get through? We're looking at probably a lot of delayed closings if this were to extend for several weeks or even a month. And also on the mortgage level, a lot of economists think that this could be detrimental to mortgage rates. Now, if you are a government that goes long periods of time without being able to straighten itself out, not super attractive for people looking to buy your debt, right? That's not a great look. And when less people are looking to buy your debt, what happens? Yields go up. So when yields go up, mortgage rates go up. So this is going to be bad from the stance of it could potentially delay closings. And it's also going to make your rates on your mortgage more expensive. Again, this is not necessary. The, the Our politicians should be able to come together and figure this out. However, all the evidence we see is that this is going to go on not only past October 1st, but most likely for several weeks, we could be experiencing a government shutdown. Next up, I want to introduce a brand new segment to the show, and the working title here is Life as a Landlord. We're going to be reviewing a post uh, from somewhere in social media or the internet talking about owning rental properties, and we'll discuss what this person did right, what this person did wrong, what potentially they could have done differently. For today, we're going to be heading over to the forum section at Bigger Pockets. If you are interested in real estate and you don't have a membership yet at Bigger Pockets, big mistake. It's 100% free and there's just endless amounts of information about owning rental properties. So that's going to be a tip for today. Today's post comes from a gentleman by the name of Sigmund and Sigmund writes, I have a tenant who is about three months into a 12 month lease agreement and asked what his options are if you would be able to get out earlier. Him and his partner are looking at buying a house. How are you guys recommending handling this? On a related note, he is renting a single family home I live in upstate New York, where it is generally harder to rent during the school year. And Sigmund goes on to share an email he received from the tenant. Tenant writes, I wanted to reach out to see if they would be open to discussing terms for an early termination of our lease. Basically, we are beginning the home buying process, and we were hoping we could come to a mutually agreeable terms for ending our lease early. For example, we'd be open to terms stating that three months notice is required to terminate, and we additionally would forfeit our security deposit, which is equivalent to 1.5 months rent. 
however, are open to other solutions. Okay, lots to digest here. How should, how should Sigmund proceed with a tenant that wants to terminate his lease agreement early? First and foremost, the thing that jumped out to me was congratulations to Sigmund on having an amazing tenant because not only did they come to you with a problem well in advance of it actually happening, but they also came with solutions as well. So whatever screening process Sigmund is using, well done. Uh, this is the type of tenant I'd be super bummed if they elected to leave one of my rentals. As far as the solution to this, there's no buy the book answer. It's going to be very much a choose your own adventure. Ideally, in your lease agreements, you're going to have written out in the event that a tenant wishes to cancel the lease agreement early, it's going to be X amount of dollars to do so. And based on Sigmund's question, it doesn't sound like this is the case here. If you've listened to previous content I've put out or you happen to be a client of the office, you know I'm a big proponent of protect the asset of all costs. So yes, you have a lease agreement that runs for 12 months and you know, let's call a spade a spade. It is a legally binding contract. So you could take that to any judge and assuming all parties signed it and it's legal in your state, you could hold that tenant accountable for all 12 months. However, there are gonna be consequences to that. If the tenant feels like you're trying to squeeze them for every possible dollar, they could stop paying you rent, right? Depending on what state you live in, it could be very difficult to get them out. It could make life difficult for other people in the building. Now, for this particular case, he did specifically say that he's renting a single family house. However, just generically, uh, if you're renting multifamily and other people live in the building, you know, he could, he could make loud noises, host parties, things like that, just general nuisances. He could start calling code enforcement and start reporting every little thing because I guarantee you, no matter how buttoned up out of an operation you run, there's always going to be something that's not brand new, right? I mean, unless you're renting out, you know, new construction, buildings get old, they're not as clean and not everything's as buttoned up as, as maybe they were uh, once upon a time. So they could start calling code enforcement, then you got to start dealing with code every day. Or they could just start damaging the property, which again is going to be a major concern for me. So I, I'm inclined to, you know, kind of work with them to uh, find a, a solution that works for everybody. If it were me, first try to nail down what times are going to be convenient for showings. Now, they did say three months heads up. If you can't re-rent your space during a three-month period, you're doing something wrong. There, there's no reason it should take three months to fill a vacancy. So nail down with the tenant, hey, I'm going to be over every Tuesday night from four to six and Saturday from noon to two. Be prepared. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be showing the property um, and just make sure everyone's aware for that. Another thing you could do is landlords can report uh, made payments to the credit reporting agencies. So you could offer, I'll pay as long as you live up to your end of the bargain, I'll report all the made payments onto your credit report. That should increase your score and make obtaining financing on this on the home you're looking to purchase, ideally more affordable. And if you read between the lines on that, that could also be viewed as, hey, if you don't live up to your end of the bargain and you miss some payments, I'm gonna be reporting it to the credit bureaus good luck getting approved for a mortgage when they find out you've defaulted on rent payments. So whether that's, you know, the carrot approach or the stick approach, uh, that's another thing you could layer in to any type of agreement. Most importantly, you know, whatever you decide to do though, just get it in writing. Uh, verbal agreements are not going to work. People could change their minds or people could view, you know, one side of a conversation differently than someone intended it to be. So no verbal agreements, everything needs to be written. Text messages, not good enough. Um, it's too easy to send documents for e-signature these days. Write up a quick agreement, you sign it, send it over to them, they sign it, easy breezy. 
there's really no excuse not to do that. As far as where did Sigmund go wrong? Did you catch any part of his email that you thought maybe, uh, Sigmund, you're, you're kind of going down the wrong direction here. I'm going to reread the portion that came from Sigmund's tenant. And the tenant wrote, uh, let's do, do, do. for example, we'd be open to terms stating that three months notice is required to terminate. And we additionally would forfeit our security deposit, which is equivalent to 1.5 months rent. However, are open to other solutions. Sigmund specifically mentioned that he rents in New York State. And in New York State, your security deposit as an owner is capped at one month's rent. So in the event you needed to take this lease agreement to court, you put it in front of a judge, that's not going to be a very fun experience for you because you've uh, you've, you've gone above and beyond what the law uh, allows you to do as an owner. So first and foremost, before you discuss any type of you know settlement or early buyout, I would refund them that uh, half a month's worth of rent and you know half a month. We're not talking a, a large amount of money here, but you do want to get that cleaned up just in case things go south. So is it a large dollar amount? Is it meaningful? No, it's not. However, it does point to a fact that if you are renting rental properties or conducting any type of business in whatever state it is, you need to know the laws that govern your type of business in the state because whether it's collecting too much of a security deposit or you know certain screening criteria isn't what it should be, you're opening yourself up to disasters down the road. So know the laws in the municipalities you operate, and that way you can avoid bigger issues down the road. And finally, we'll wrap up today with a conversation I had with a client of mine who's interested in becoming a real estate investor. And this person mentioned to me they're thinking about pushing out their purchase till next year just because everything that they've been reading points to some type of an incoming market correction and they're worried about buying at the absolute top of market. No big surprise. I don't want you to delay. I want you to jump in now. Here's a few reasons why I came up with why you're going to be better served taking action today versus delaying until some hypothetical date in the future. First, when you buy rental property, more often than not, you're going to be using debt to do so. And assuming a 30-year mortgage, during that first year of ownership, you're going to be paying down just a smidge under 1% of that loan balance. At the same time, you're also going to have 12 months of rental income coming in the door as well. As owners of rental property, we care about increasing our net worth. We want to make life better for ourselves, for our families. The longer you delay, the longer it's going to take you to pay off the mortgage and the less income that's going to be coming in as well. The second component to this is a bit anecdotal because it's specific to a first-time investor. However, it might be the most important thing we covered today. And that's the longer you delay, the longer you push out your learning curve. And I don't care how many books you read, how many podcasts you listen to, how many coffee meetups you get with current owners. Until you own rental properties, you have no idea what it's actually like. And while you're waiting, guess what? Your competition, they're doing. They're learning, they're getting better, and you're on the sidelines. And finally, what if you're wrong? <laughs> so what if prices don't retreat like you think they are? What are you going to do? Wait another six months? Wait a year, two years? When do you actually make the jump? If you were to look at a chart of long-range prices for home prices in the capital region, it's bottom left to top right, meaning historically 
prices go up and up in the capital region at a slow trajectory, but they go up nonetheless. There was a wise South African that once said, the future is no place to place your better days. You are better off jumping in now than waiting for some hypothetical date that may or may not ever come. That's it for the show. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Hopefully you got something out of this. If you do want to connect, my email address is steven at sjlincoln.com, or you can book a call or a Zoom conversation with me, sjlincoln.com slash book a call. Again, email steven at sjlincoln.com, sjlincoln.com slash book a call. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again soon.